Romans 8, we have reached verse 31. So Paul has moved through. He's brought us to the place where the process that God has begun in our lives finds its inevitable and glorious end, talking about those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and he's brought us all the way through justification to glorification, and he's, he has these folks who used to be us or others who were once standing before God, guilty, condemned, with nothing to say, now in such a position that we're saved, we're filled with his spirit, we're his sons and daughters, we've been justified, and we are in fact so sure of our end that we are now able to challenge anyone who would come against that position that the Lord has us in. And the end of this chapter here, that's really what he's going to do. He's going to kind of just throw down any challenge, any thought that anybody could bring against the truths that he's laid out and really their inevitable applications in our lives. So saying that, let's begin verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Well, if all that is true, then what do you say? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is what he says. Okay, what, so what do you say now after you've kind of said all of that, which has been a lot and we've spent a few weeks in? What he says is, okay, if God is for us, and if in the Greek can sometimes mean different things, this one means if, and he certainly is, since God is for us, then who can be against us? If, if God, this great God, God our Father, who has enveloped our world, our bodies, our souls in his good and his great purposes, is for us, if the links of verses 28 through 30 are true, that he foreknew us and then he called us and he justified us and he glorified us, how can God actually be anything but for us? He can't be against us if this is where he's taking us. He, he has uh, a disposition that is for us. Paul says, what, what do we say? One of the things we have to say is that God is for us. One of the messages that you will hear often this time of year is from heaven, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. God's goodness, his inclination to deal bountifully with his creation. It's, it's something that the enemy wants to challenge in our lives. Uh, I don't remember who it was, maybe Charles Spurgeon, where I read it, but the, the, the phrase stuck with me, and their, their encouragement was, don't think hard thoughts of God. And it's so easy for us to, in any kind of scenario where there's a challenge in our lives, begin to think hard thoughts of God. Ideas like, he's getting me back for something in my past. He's causing this to happen because of something that I did or didn't do. That God won't really care about this or come through in this way. 
that it's so easy for those things to kind of slip into our lives. And what Paul is saying is that can't possibly be true. This God, if, if everything he's just laid out here, if that is true, then what do we say? Well, what we have to say is that God is for us. That, that is the, the standing that you and I are in. And anywhere that the enemy begins to challenge that in our lives, anywhere I begin to feel like God isn't really for me, even if it's little things, you're at a restaurant and they're like stingy with the napkins. This restaurant is against me. You know, like you, you have a basic sense of like, they don't even want me here. They, right. There could be small, you have this little like pressing thing in the end, they need me because they need my business, but they're not really for me right now type of a deal. And sometimes we can treat God like that. Like, yes, I know in the end he died for me and He's going to kind of get me there, but he's not really for me in the moment. That's, that's what Paul's trying to take and get rid of here. No, you don't see that anywhere with Jesus Christ. His entire life was for us. And his whole plan is for us. And he says, well, if God is then for us, right where we are today in our lives, whatever is happening, then who can be against us? That being true, who, who do I have to fear that's against us? Now, Paul doesn't say no one will be against us. Notice that. His question is, who is it that can be against us? His point is that the enemies that we may have, that we could name, and Paul does in his own life name some of his enemies, call them out by name, and he had plenty of them, and maybe we can name some ourselves. We know those who would be against us in one way or another, that anyone who is actually against us can't achieve anything in confounding God's purposes in our lives. Then in the end, it doesn't matter. If God is for Moses, it doesn't matter who's against him. If God is for Elijah, it doesn't matter who's against him. If God is for Joseph, it doesn't matter who is against him. If God is for Daniel, it doesn't matter who's against him. We could just go through the whole thing here. You could walk through anybody in the Bible. If God is for that person, it does not matter who is against that person. Ultimately, any enemy's plans or works cannot confound God's good plan in that person's life. And we might have people against us. You might feel like you have a boss or a coworker or a parent or a friend or somebody who's currently against you, or you could begin to feel like this person is stopping something in my life. The reality is, if God's for you, who can be against you? Don't give that person more credit than they deserve. In the end, nobody can really be against us. No doubt these Romans had plenty that would be against them in their day. And like I said, Paul had the same. But in all of it, his emphasis was not who was against him. I think this is where we, this is where we mess up. 
we give way more priority or emphasis to who's against us and what they're doing than we do to God who is for us. And Paul was giving the emphasis to God who was for him. And he had seen this in his life. He had experienced it. He had learned it. But it was true either way. Whether, whether we had the experience Paul had or not, whether we believe it or not, it is true. He says, what, what do we say to all this? If God is for us, and he is for you, who could be against us? Don't, don't give those who would try to be against you more credit than they deserve. We should give God the credit he deserves. And I should walk with a sense in my relationship with him, in my life, that, Lord, you are actually for me. I, could, I can wonder at times how this works out or why this would be the certain scenario. But I shouldn't doubt in the end that he's for me, and I should be looking for how he is for me and not allowing secondary causes to have the credit that only God should have. Here, if, we, if you, you want to say, well, how do we know that without a shadow of a doubt? Well, he tells us in verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. If, if I want to know that God is for me 100%, how do I know that? Well, he says, God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up. The word for delivered there is the same as in chapter 4, verse 25, when Paul says, who was delivered up because of our offenses. He delivered him up for our offenses. If there was one cost that would have been too much. If there was one line that would have been too far, if there was a limit that God would have reached, it would have been his son. If there was a place that he wouldn't have gone in his being for us, it would have been in giving his son, his own son, on our behalf. And what Paul says, if he spared not his own son, if he went that far, then how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? There was a cost there. Hendrickson in his commentary on Romans says, if this does not mean that in a sense, Giving up his only begotten and fathomlessly loved son was for the father a genuine sacrifice, then words no longer have meaning. We, we don't have to understand the whole thing. But what Paul says is, he already went this far. Why, why would we doubt something lesser? Unbelief is always challenging us. It's the question, the words of unbelief are, how shall he, how shall he, how shall, how will he make this happen? How will he do this? How, how will this work out? 
And what Paul is saying is, no, faith is totally opposite. Faith says, how shall he not? If he already did this, then how will he not come through? How will he not be for me in this? How will he not express his love in my life if he's already gone to this extent? If he spared not his own son, then how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? You know, it tells us something wonderful about our father and our elder brother that both are more willing to give than I am to receive. That's a wonderful thing about God. He's, he's more willing to give than even I am to receive, than, than I am to even want those blessings that are good and real in my life. Yeah, he can't give wicked things to us because he actually loves us. He can't give you a serpent to harm you, right? A loving father, he says, couldn't do that for his kid. Of course, God can't extend to us things that would harm us, but he will always be for us and he will always give what is good. That's what he's like. Every good and precious gift rains down from him like light from the sun. He can't not do that because of who he is, of what he's already given And anything that I need then, in heaven or earth, is lesser than what he's already given. So why can I not trust him for that? For love, for forgiveness, for blessing, for holiness, for righteousness, for life, for inheritance, for glory. Himself. He's already given everything. The limit would have been Jesus. But he spared not his own son. How do you know God is for you? That's how you know God is for you. You're like, well, if he was really for me, I would have had this or this lesser thing. No, no, no. He's already done the greater thing, the central thing. You have that right in front of you. And if he's done that, then faith says, okay, Everything else will come with that. All things. You see what comes with Jesus, Paul says, not just some things, but literally all freely give us all things. Free is always good. Not not that it didn't have a cost, but it's not going to have a cost to you or to me. He paid the cost and he freely gives us all things. It's a big, that's a big thing um, that Paul seems to think about quite a bit. Uh, you know, all things sounds almost exaggerated, but it was a, a thought that Paul seemed to like. He says it in Romans 8, 28, 32, 11, 36, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23, 1 Corinthians 15, 27, 28, Ephesians 1, 22, Philippians 3, 21, Colossians 1, 16, 20, probably Hebrews 2, 8 through 9, right? Like in the Bible, a whole bunch of times he's talking about all things that we have and all these kind of different angles of them in Christ Jesus, because, you see, 
all things were in Christ before creation. All things were brought into existence by him. He holds all things together currently. He's going to bring all things to their final and completed end. All things are in him. So when God gives us his son, he gives us all things. We get everything else too. If we have him, we have everything that goes with him. And everything that goes with him is everything. Or everything eternal and lasting. Because he's going to bring all things to their completed end. Us, the redemption of our bodies, the revealing of the sons and the daughters of God. A new heavens and a new earth. A new Jerusalem that we live and dwell in. And a world where everything is pure, true, where nothing can enter or defile or make a lie or an abomination. Everything that's actually going to matter and be there is yours in Christ Jesus. And I have all those things in him forever. The father gives all those things to his son and then he gives us his son. So he says, he has freely given you all things in Christ Jesus. If he was going to hold something back, it would have been Christ Jesus. And if we didn't have Jesus, we wouldn't have anything. But he gives you his son. So how shall he not also with him freely give you all things? They're all his. And he gave you him. And he that overcomes, Revelation 21, 7, shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. It's his plan. And if that's what his plan is in the end, can I trust him now for what I need? Of course, Paul is saying. To have him, I got everything else. If I, I don't even know what I need, but he has the wisdom of what I need. He has the power to make it happen. He is a substitute for everything, but nothing is a substitute for him. If I, if I lose God, then I got nothing. If I lose his son, I have nothing. It doesn't matter how much I give myself to here on earth. I know I'm losing it all. None of it will satisfy me in the end. We know these things. But if we have him, then I have everything else that I need. Again, seems huge, cosmic almost, Kind of like a distant fairy tale. This is the type of thing that we would have believed when we believed in unicorns and dragons. Right? Sounds it's like so big, Paul. What are you talking about? All things. Kind of crazy. But the reality is this. God's perfect and he's holy. And he cannot lie. He only speaks the truth. And when he gives comfort, he doesn't comfort us with fairy tales. He comforts us with reality. In fact, reality that's probably a whole lot deeper, stronger, more solid, more real than we're yet to know. We're walking around wondering if God is for us. And he's like, he already gave you his son. You have all things in him. Not just at your disposal, but in your future. 
you think you're lacking. If you didn't have his son, then you would be lacking. Now you have everything in him. And he's going to continue with these kind of challenges that would come against these ideas. 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And and he's going to have a couple challenges right here. The first being in 33 says, who can lay anything to our charge as his elect? These Roman Christians as the church were the elect of God. They were chosen of him for his purposes, as Israel was in the Old Testament. And he's going to get into that in the next couple chapters. And I think that was important, particularly for these Jews who are saved, because, you know, you live with this sense that we're honoring God. We have his truth. We're, we're called into his purposes. We are his elect. And then you realize things are changing in Jesus Christ. And it can be like, now we're part of the church. Are we kind of outside of that? Paul says, no, 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 you're still part of the plan. He's, he's still getting you there. Same place, going to be glorified. You're his chosen still. And if you're a part of that, if you're God's elect, who is going to bring any charge against you when it's God who justifies? And he doesn't need to elaborate. He simply states here that all the debts that you have, God's already paid them. Who's going to come to you and say, you owe a debt? Who can, who can lay the charge on our account? This person has something to pay, and they haven't paid it. He already knows all the charges, and he made all the payments. So who's going to come to him and lay a charge against us, against his elect? He says, it's dealt with. He doesn't deal with it. He's dealt with it kind of already in the chapter. He's just removing that kind of idea. Again, Satan, other people, they're going to pressure this idea that you still have something to pay for before God as his son or daughter. And he's saying he's already dealt with all that. You have all things in him. It's already been paid for. You are justified in him. Next, he says... Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So here now he says, who is going to bring an accusation against them that they should be condemned by it? Paul had already shown there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Who who is going to come and condemn us for something, even our weakness, even after our salvation. Christ has already received our execution, the penalty. He's already been condemned on our behalf, and now he's risen. He's at the right hand of God. Uh, Whatever sin you feel like you have that would be condemned before God, Jesus already paid for it on the cross, And now he is risen, resurrected, and at God's right hand. So whatever that thing is that would condemn you, it's already been dealt with. If if that was still something that would be condemned before God, then Jesus, who carried it, wouldn't be able to be at the right hand. And over and over and over again, Scripture tells us 
He's at the right hand of the Father. Acts 7.55, Romans 8.34, Ephesians 1.20, Colossians 3.1, Hebrews 1.3.8.1.10.12.12.2. The whole point is, not only is he exalted, but everything that I would think that would keep me from entering into that place, Jesus already carried. And not just my sins, but all sins. And he is accepted and at the right hand of the Father. So there's no condemnation for me. And he's there ever living to make intercessions for the saints. The the point is you and I are supposed to look to him, hopefully, recognizing that we have an advocate with the Father. That he's there saying, this is already dealt with, already paid for interceding on our behalf kind of kind of weird you know if we we can try to think like what does it look like for Christ to be praying for me to be interceding on my behalf I think it's it can be strange for us but for them I don't think it was strange at all particularly because they saw Jesus doing that in the flesh and one thing we forget is before these disciples had you know any type of systematic doctrine it was embodied before them They saw Jesus praying. He told Peter, I'm praying for you that your faith wouldn't fail. Satan wants to sift you as wheat. They knew Jesus was praying for them. So for that Jesus that they had seen do all those things, to be in heaven and intercede for them isn't weird for them. It's just Jesus being Jesus. They they don't have to work it all out. They already knew it was something that was true. And it was really encouraging and it, sh- it should be the same for us. You know, sometimes uh, heaven just makes it seem kind of far. It would almost be like if I said to you, you know, Jesus is in the other room praying for you. You would, might feel more encouraged. Because it's almost like he's closer. He's right there in the prayer room on his knees praying for you right now. You'd be like, this is going to be a good Bible study. <laughs> well, he, he is intercede. He doesn't need to be nearer to us. He's at the right hand of the Father. So who's going to condemn? Paul says, it's not certainly Jesus. We're encouraged to look to him as our one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's not the church. It's not Calvary Chapel. It's not your spiritual mentor. It is Jesus himself. He is our high priest. We still have a priest. It's not me. It's Jesus. He's the priest that we look to. And he's the one who's dealt with all of it. And he's the one who intercedes for us. And I think this is particularly important, not only for us today. I think it was really important for them. Certainly those believers faced a lot of um, just condemning accusations. We know the enemy, that he's the accuser of the brethren. Any of us that live any amount of time are going to face accusations, some true, some false. And it's easy to be condemned under accusation. But, you know, believers all through the centuries, that was the reality. Jesus was falsely condemned, falsely accused over and over again. And he was perfect. These Roman believers 
are, are going to be accused of setting Rome on fire, and many of them are going to be martyred because of it. Those early Christians were accused of all types of crazy stuff, cannibalism, uh, worshiping false gods, insurrection. None of it was true. Just false charges drummed up all around the world, even today, brothers and sisters in Christ, accused falsely, blasphemy, all types of things in our own culture. If you're going to be a believer who holds to the truth, you're going to be accused falsely, at least called a bigot or hateful or unloving, a legalistic person, whatever, whatever the world wants to throw out there at us. There's always going to be some level of condemnation toward us. But we're all heading towards the judge of all the earth. And I'll take my condemnation just about anywhere as long as it's not before Jesus Christ. As, as long as we're good there, we're all right. And what Paul is saying is, who, who is he who condemns? Jesus Christ carried our sins, and he's risen, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for us. There's, there's no condemnation that can take us out of his good plan. Even the condemnation we would throw on ourselves. It's not from him. It's not from the Holy Spirit. It's not who he is. And he adds to that, in 35 and 36, who will separate us from the love of Christ. And now he's going to name seven things here. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? Certainly the, the, the believers were in all types of those situations. Or famine, uh, need in various ways, nakedness, again, need in various ways, peril or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And what Paul is saying here is, who, who can separate us from God's loving purposes? What he's been talking about, what he just kind of finished bringing up. And this, this kind of list of things that he brings out here, really this was uh, the reality of the path of many Christians through the centuries and still is today. In various places. We all go through various persecutions. We all go through various uh, tribulations, distresses, famine, nakedness. Paul literally talked about those things. The church in Jerusalem had a terrible famine that they were dealing with. Nakedness, Paul talked about that in peril, traveling places of robbers, in peril in the sea, in all different types of places that were dangerous for him, or the sword which Paul would face and give his life to, the executioner's sword. All these types of things they faced. And I think, you know, it's easy for us to get in the place where we're like, Lord, if you love me, how come I don't get this or that blessing that we see in other Christians' lives? We can compare how come like they get this. or We might not say it out loud, but we kind of hope that everything goes right for us, like it seems like it does for other people. When in reality, we should be thinking, why don't I get this or that persecution that believers all over the world have walked through for hundreds of years? Uh, we, there's no reason why something worse shouldn't be happening in our life. 
We just, we just so self-focused on things. And what Paul's saying is, no matter what happens in our lives, yes, these things exist, but he's emphatically challenging anyone to prove that they actually separate us from the love of God or his purposes. Prove to me that any tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword separates me from the love of Christ or his purposes. Am I not going to be resurrected? Am I not going to be a part of the revealing? Is Christ not going to be with me through the process? Am I not forgiven now? Is my relationship with him over? Absent from the body is present with the Lord. Do I not make it in the new heavens and new earth? Are there not going to be a new heavens and new earth now? How, how does any of this separate me from what he has? And Paul had tested that path a little bit further than most of us. Maybe than anybody other than Jesus Christ. And that was important. You know, I, I think, again, we talked earlier, I, I believe Paul was supposed to be an example of a person who finds joy in Christ despite all their sufferings. Paul faced all these things and yet never displayed separation from the love of God. Didn't mean it was always easy. But there was definitely something different about the dude who could get beat up, thrown in jail, and sing worship songs at night. Right? That's different. Or be in jail you know, under house arrest and write about, you know, I, I don't know if the Lord wants me to stay here. That would be better for you guys. Or if he wants me to depart and be with him, which would be far better. You know, if you're trying to torture a guy and he thinks it's better to die and go to heaven, you're like, okay, don't kill him. He likes it. What do we do here with this guy? You know, I uh, this, this is different. And Paul was an example of something. I think God gives us that. We, we need that at times where we can, it's, it's a blessing to have Christians who serve the Lord in a way where they display true joy and contentment, even in the midst of really difficult scenarios and situations. And that challenges us, especially those of us who are not in those situations. And we need that in our lives. It helps us focus on the right things. And Paul had tested that path, but he says that doesn't, separate us. And he quotes now in verse 36 from Psalm 44, where he says, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And the Psalm there is a plea for God's people to trust in him and his purposes, even though there was an enemy that they were powerless in front of that was persecuting them. And that enemy was ignoring, in, in essence, God's love for them and care for them. And the psalmist is saying, look, this is what we're like. Like counted like sheep for the slaughter all the day long before this, this enemy of ours. But he has this wonderful expression of trust in the Lord still and God's purposes. In verse 17 of that psalm, he says, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. Beautiful. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. They're looking to the Lord still in the middle of their difficulty and in their hardships. And the reality is, in 37, he says, Yet in all these things, 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, all, all the difficulties, the trials, the, the hardships, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You see, the, the main issue with the dark mysteries of suffering in this life is not our inability to find an ultimate explanation. And number one, God couldn't do that. He's not going to explain to us how he's running the universe and all of time. Nor could he even explain to us all the intricacies of every human life and how it all mixes together. But even if we could get an explanation for things, it wouldn't really make it better because we're still going through the things. Even if Job had a little bit more of an explanation of what was happening in his life, it, it would still be suffering. It would still be difficult what he went through. We don't, we don't escape it, per se. And even if you begin to write off God, people are like, well, I don't believe in God then if he allows this to happen. Okay, that, that doesn't actually change any of the scenarios. It's still the same life, still the same suffering. Nothing has gotten better by writing off God other than you have no purpose in your suffering now. And there's no promise in it. And there's no hope in it. There's no reward in it. Where all those things are there with him. And what we really want is not how to find an explanation in our suffering. It's how to find victory in it. How do we overcome it? That's what Paul wanted. How do I overcome it? And he experienced that in his life. Suffering wasn't escaped by Jesus Christ, but he overcame it. So in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome. He overcame those things. What do we find in him when we look at him? That that suffering servant of God came and he made the cross his answer to evil and suffering. He entered into it. He took our sin, all of it, and he overcame it. And he's risen, and he's at the right hand of God. And he's ready to set everything right and to bring it all to its expected end. He came in humility as a servant. People didn't recognize who he really was. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. Son of God, as a babe. He came in humility, and now he serves in obscurity. We don't see him. You might see his works, but we don't see him. He's outside of our sight line. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And he's going to serve just as faithfully there. And then one day, he's going to come in glory, in public. And he's going to rule and reign. And you know what? He's going to be a servant in glory too. All the way through. And the point that he faced suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in him. And in us, because we have all things in him. So how do we become more than conquerors in all this that we face in life, not through religious rites 
uh, through befriending the world, uh, through the ballot box or the betterment of society. It's not by inclusive love that the world asks for, not even by hard work. All those things have their own kind of place, but they're not how we overcome. We overcome, Paul says, through him who loved us. On the cross, most clearly, through Christ and Christ alone, I overcome my sin, the sin of those around me, and the sin ultimately in the world that I live in. That's the only way I'll overcome any of that. I have no hope of overcoming any of it outside of him. It's the only way that we overcome. And he asks us to believe in that and to step into it. I want to read you something. A guy named Yosef Tan uh, wrote his doctorate, really big book. It's not a super easy read, but there's some great stuff in there called Suffering, Martyrdom, and Rewards in Heaven. I believe he's from Romania and like thinking about going and serving the Lord and becoming a martyr. And just began to think, like, how can God really ask this of us? How, how could he ask a person that's his son to, to go back to people that would want to kill him and minister? And in that book, he says this, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, calls people to himself and demands from them total allegiance to himself. Nothing of this world, not father or mother, husband or wife, son or daughter or material goods, ought to stand between him and his children. Jesus expects them to learn from him and to become like him. Then Jesus sends them into the world as his father sent him into the world to spread his message and be his witnesses. And he knows that the world will hate his witnesses and will turn against them with merciless violence. Nonetheless, he expects them to meet that hatred with love and to face that violence with glad acceptance, following his example by suffering and dying for the lost world. Their suffering and martyrdom are prompted by their allegiance to his own person and are endured for the purpose of spreading his gospel. Christ's disciples do not seek these things for their own sake. and They do not inflict these things on themselves. Their goal is not to suffer and die. On the contrary, their goal is Christ's person and Christ's cause in the world and the spreading of his gospel. Martyrdom is the function God gives to some of his elect to literally die for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And from what the scriptures intimate, it's apparent that there's a fixed number of God's children who have been predestined by God for this supreme sacrifice. God entered into history by sending his incarnate son as a suffering slave who would end his own earthly life, enduring torture and martyrdom. In this event, God revealed to us that suffering and self-sacrifice are his specific methods for tackling the problems of rebellion, of evil, and of the sin of mankind. Self-sacrifice is the only method consistent with his own nature. For instance, God cannot respond to hate with hate, because if he did, he would borrow not only the method, but also the nature of the one who is the originator of hate, the evil one. God can only respond with love because he is love. And by suffering and sacrificing himself for the ones who hate him, he expresses the essence of his own nature. The point is, suffering doesn't separate us from the love of God. It embodies it. When he calls us, 
to follow him in this world and allows us to face a measure of it, it doesn't separate us from the love of God. It puts us in a position where we can actualize it, where we can make it real. Facing the trials and sufferings of this life in faith, hope, and love, we show God's triumph and his truth, and we become like Jesus Christ. That's, that's what he's talking about. We prove it as witnesses, even to the point of martyrdom, if God so willed. Although for most of us, that's probably not what our position is. For most of us, our position is we become more than conquerors as suffering literally helps us to our desired end. It makes us more like Christ, and it allows us to become a part of his plan in the world. And again, I don't choose it. He said in there, we don't, we don't look for it or hunt it down. But I realize when tribulations or distresses or persecutions or famine or nakedness or peril or sword appear in my life and in the path of obedience, this is not separating me from the love of God. It didn't separate the Son of God from the Father's love. And it's not separating me either. And Paul says, we can be like the psalmist says, even like those who are killed all day long, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That was what Jesus did. He conquered those things. And it's every day of life, and it's the final day of life. It's true in all of them. And again, he says in 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, it's not that none of these things exist. Paul isn't saying death does, doesn't exist or difficulty in life doesn't exist or other supernatural powers don't exist. What he's saying is in their existence, they never separate us from him and his love. Just because Jesus literally faced temptation from the literal Satan didn't mean he was separated from the love of his father. And just because he ended up going to the cross didn't mean he was separated from the love of his father. In fact, it was the way he said he was proving his love for his father. That he received that commandment of his father and that the world would know his love for the father by him laying down his life. And you and I, when we face these things, what he's saying is nothing's going to separate us. When we come to the first thing he begins with is death, which seems like the biggest challenge. He's with us. That's, that's what our hope is. I don't die alone. I don't die unseparated. 
or separated. I die unseparated. I am with him. This God is our guide even unto death, the scriptures say. He's the only one that can walk through that path with me. He's already overcome. He's faced that suffering. He's taken a last breath in a human frame. And he's risen. He's on the right hand of the Father. So when I go there, I don't go to a place he hasn't been. Death doesn't separate me from his love. Death didn't separate Peter from his love or Paul from his love. Paul was persuaded about these things. He says in 2 Timothy, right before his death, at my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me that all the Gentiles may hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul said, everybody left me at the end, but the Lord stood with me and he delivered me in that moment and he will deliver me ultimately from every evil work. He was persuaded that death would not separate him from the love of God. That's what our hope is. Not that we don't necessarily face death, but that doesn't separate me. He's persuaded that life would not do it. Maybe death doesn't cause you as much fear as life. Everywhere we look, statistics tell us that suicide is rising. Numbers are up everywhere, particularly after everything with COVID. And who knows, that doesn't even include how many you know, deaths through dr- drugs and alcohol were really suicides. Like the, it's, it's pretty astronomical, the numbers, if you think about it. And it's really sad. It's a testimony of where our culture is. Like, why, why do so many people, we've created a culture where so many people begin to look at life and they are so afraid of what their life is that death looks like an escape. That's, that's where human beings have found themselves, where we live. And it's not what the Lord has for us. Some of us, maybe we're afraid of life. Life does not separate me from the love of God. Even something that's happened in my life. Sometimes people have something in their past or some secret. And they just assume like this thing would separate them from God. Or if they brought it out, it would separate them from everybody that they know. Well, what Paul says is, death won't separate you from the love of God. Life will not separate you from his love. It could be wearying, but if there's something that I can open in life, that God's love is going to be there no matter what. It's not going to change. That changes everything. It changes everything. We can turn to him. We can surrender our life. We can stop trying to hold on to it or find it or control it or protect it. We give it up and we find his love. Paul died 
before he had his head chopped off for Jesus Christ. He was one type of person. And when he got knocked off that horse that day, he said, Lord, who are you? And he said, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And he, he trembled, the Bible tells us. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? That was where he died. Saul was over. His whole life was done. Lord, what do you want me to do? And now his life was fully surrendered to the Lord. And when he did that, you know what, he, you know what actually happened? He found himself. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Never would have been an apostle. Never would have been the ultimate picture of joy in Christian suffering outside of that. Never would have written these amazing things that are still encouraging Christians thousands of years down the line. Never would have been who he really was supposed to be in life had he not given up his life to Jesus Christ. He found Jesus' love in his life. And all the difficulties he found, they didn't separate him. They didn't separate him one bit. They were his path to discovering his love. He pictures these other things. Again, angels, principalities, powers. These are uh, supernatural powers, demonic activity. Uh, again, I think a little bit bigger in their culture than maybe ours, although these things are on the rise in the culture that you and I live in. There are real spiritual powers, real powers of darkness. And there's other cultures, been places in Africa and other places where they have certain things in the Bible. Maybe they only literally have part of the Bible, like just the Gospel of Matthew. And believers who are saved are still very much influenced by superstition and those types of supernatural things where if the Bible doesn't tell me about something, then I just kind of turn to what I used to know, which might be the witch doctor or some supernatural superstitious practice. And it's sad where people end up. But what Paul is saying is there is no supernatural power that can separate you from the love of God. The minute we're translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, Nothing can separate you from the love of God. It doesn't matter if Satan himself is standing in my room. I don't want this. But the point is, God loves me. You can't do anything to me outside of his control. I can just surrender myself to the Lord, and I don't have to fear anything. Because... Nothing can, nothing can get in between, not even for a moment, not even for a second. There's no power, supernatural power outside that can get in and break that up between us. Nothing, again, present or things to come. Whatever is in your life right now, it is not separating you from the love of God. Whatever is in the future, some of us you know, we're, we, our life might actually be great now, and we're just terrified about the future. Things are so good right now, I know something's going to break soon. You know, uh, we're just worried something's going to happen, or something's going to happen, or something's going to happen. And most of the time, it never happens. Or literally, uh, if something were to happen, it, there's nothing we could do about it anyway. And what we really need to learn is just trust in him in the moment. 
and uh, fear begins to dominate people's lives. He's saying, whatever you can imagine, whatever's happening right now in your life, and whatever you can imagine might happen in the future, whatever thing you are afraid of, whatever political figure you don't want to win, right? Whatever, whatever love you have that you're concerned for, a person in your life or a certain hope or dream, you're like, oh man, this thing might fall apart. Nothing can happen in the future that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing present, nothing to come. Because God is for you. And he controls everything. No height, no depth, nothing from up in the heavens, nothing from under the earth. He is the one who has the keys to Hades and death. He's at the right hand of the Father. Nothing high, nothing low. Anything from any of those realms, anywhere we could go in relation to them. Nothing in the created order nor any other created thing. It's like Paul just has to lump it in. Anything else that the creator literally made will not be able to separate you from him and his love. You will never find yourself alone and unloved in Christ Jesus. Now, you can convince yourself otherwise. Other people might try to tell you that. Satan's going to do his worst to make you believe that. But this is what the word of God is. And what I should do is say, okay, if nothing can knock me out of the links of God's golden purpose here, if nothing can get in between me and him, then I look at life in a fully new way. And it gives peace and trust and hope. And I understand that God is for me. And since nothing is able to separate me from his love, my security is as settled as God is. Like God's not stressing out about his plan. So why am I stressing out about it? He's not worried about what he's doing. So why am I worried about it? He's gonna make it all happen. So I can rest it in his hands. If you feel far from what Paul is describing here, or maybe you just feel like that could be true for another person, but not me. Well, remember, he's more willing to give than you are to receive. And if he has already given you his son, how shall he not also with him then freely give you all things? And part of the all things is faith that what he says is actually true. The realization that God is for you, that he does love you, and that nothing will ever separate you from that. If you need that, then just in humble, childlike faith, say, Lord, I need that. I need you to make that real in my life. It is real. He doesn't, he doesn't comfort us with fairy tales. He speaks the truth. He is the truth. And he can't lie. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these things. We thank you that they are 
<clears throat> more real than we know and that we will never come to the end of them. Lord, I do want to pray <clears throat> just especially for anybody that's here tonight that at present feels like they are separated from your love in some way, that you would make yourself known to them, Lord, that you would reveal your love to them afresh in your Son. And Lord, those of us who you know are challenged in these things by the enemy on one level or another, help us, Lord, just to hold to your word in faith and to move forward trusting in your goodness, Lord. We don't want to get there at the end, Lord. At least I know I don't want to get there at the end and just look back and realize <clears throat> I had doubted your character the whole time. We know you're going to come through. And we know that you're for us. So, Lord, uh, in a way that I can never, through my words, through the foolishness of preaching, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, take the things that are yours and make them real in our hearts and lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.